Thank you for joining us for episode 456 of Live Happy Now. As we continue our month-long look at love, this week we're talking about an inevitable but painful aspect of it. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and today I'm sitting down with best-selling novelist Claire McIntosh, who has written her first nonfiction book, and it's very personal. I Promise It Won't Always Hurt Like This is part memoir and part roadmap through the tricky and heart-wrenching journey of grief. As you're about to hear, Claire wrote these 18 assurances on grief years after the death of her son, and she has encouraging words for everyone who is mourning the loss of love. Let's have a listen. Claire, thank you so much for joining me on Live Happy Now. Thank you for having me. I am really, really excited to talk to you. Most people know you as a New York Times bestselling author. You write thrillers. And what we're talking about today could not be farther removed from that. So what we're talking about today is your new book that's coming out in March. It's called I Promise It Won't Always Hurt Like This. And it is about grief and loss all this month, we are talking about love on Live Happy Now. So for many, it might seem odd to include loss as part of that conversation, but it really is. Well, they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? You don't grieve for someone unless you loved them. Right, right. And there, loss is inevitable. In some way, we are going to lose the ones we love. We are. And I think that the more conversations we have about death, about grief, about how we are likely to prepare for that and and to feel when it happens, the better. And as a a writer and a prolific reader, the best way I know to start conversations is books. Yes, yes. And you do it so well. And what's interesting is even prior to this book, with your fiction, grief has really informed your work. Can you talk a little bit about that, how it has appeared in, in your fiction work? It keeps cropping up in in my fiction, even when I don't (laughs) set out to write about grief. My first book is very obviously about grief in that the central character um, has lost a child. The book starts, in fact, with a a hit and run that that kills a, a child. This is I Let You Go, which was my big debut. And I guess I put a lot of my own emotions in that as someone who had lost a child herself so I imbued that character with a lot of the emotions that that I was feeling. But then what I found in subsequent novels is that it just kept creeping in. Either I was exploring it directly in that the characters were experiencing grief, or it was a sort of a, a slightly more obtuse angle. Perhaps they were, you know, grieving a trauma. One of my characters in my more recent novel, The Last Party, is grieving the sort of the loss of her adolescence, I suppose, as a result of something very big and traumatic that that happened to her as a teenager. So yeah, grief has sort of woven itself through everything that I've written, but I have never written directly about my own grief. What's interesting is that this book really began as a Twitter post. Can you give us that backstory? I found this so interesting. Yeah. I mean, social media is, it can be a really difficult place, can't it, in lots of ways, but it's also an amazing place for people to come together and and draw comfort in each other's stories. What happened was that I felt a sudden need to share something. And it was because I'd woken up on the 14th anniversary of my son's death. And I hadn't realized it was his anniversary. And that was significant for me simply because anniversaries 
have been really tough. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of people find these significant dates, you know, that the anniversary of someone's death, their birthday, perhaps a wedding anniversary, whatever it is, a significant date can be really, really difficult when you've lost someone. And so for years, I'd really struggled with the 10th of December as just this sort of spectre of the year where I would feel my grief more acutely than any other time. And on this particular day, I woke up and I just I just did what I normally did. I had breakfast and I did some work and, you know, and then I suddenly realized it was December 10th. And I felt, well, initially, I actually felt guilty. I had Mm. this sudden flood of, oh, my goodness, how could I have forgotten this huge date? But then what I felt was a kind of pride, I suppose, that I had survived, that it it made me think about the way those anniversaries had changed and consequently the way my grief had changed over time. So I went on what was then Twitter and I shared some thoughts on the way grief evolves over time. And what I wanted to do was promise people that it would get better, that it would get easier to carry. And this was a promise that had been made to me in the immediate aftermath of my son's death. A a woman had come to the door and given me a bunch of daffodils from her garden. We'd never met before, but she had lost a child herself many years previously. And she wanted to reach out and promise me that it would get better. And I didn't believe her, but it had. And so I tweeted these promises, different aspects of grief and the way they changed. And the thread went viral and I was inundated with messages from people all over the world. And they were kind of split into two camps. There were the people who, like me, were veterans in their grief, who were saying, yes, you're you're absolutely right. This is what happens to grief over time. It, it becomes easier to carry. It becomes softer. It becomes something that we live with, but it doesn't define us. And then there were the other stories, the people who were right at the start of their grief journey, who were saying, I really needed to hear these promises. Thank you. I need to know that there's hope. I need to know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I tried to reply to all these messages, but they came in so fast. I just couldn't. So I did what authors do. And I wrote a book. Because <laughs> yes, that is what you do. And I want to ask you, because as you said, when that woman told you it would get better, you didn't believe her. And I think that's true of every one of us who experiences a devastating loss, we feel like, okay, I understand your situation got better, but mine never will. And I think that's very human and it needs to, it's okay to feel that way. It absolutely is. I distinctly remember what I was thinking when that woman was talking to me. And, you know, I wouldn't, I would never have said this to her face. And I'm still really quite ashamed of the fact that I thought it, but what I was thinking was, you can't have loved your child the way mm. that I love mine. Because if you did, it wouldn't get better. You wouldn't be standing. You wouldn't be, you know, have makeup on and be dressed nicely and holding down a job. And you wouldn't yeah. be doing any of this because my life has fallen apart and it will never get better. You know, it's not an attractive thought, it, but grief is. But it's human. Yeah. Yes, it is. Grief isn't soft focus, like tear-stained cheeks and, and crisp white handkerchiefs. 
grief is ugly and raw and painful. And often it's, you know, it's angry. It's losing your temper with people or being aggressive even. It's so many different things and they are all totally normal and totally valid. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with your assurances, and that's what they are. I love that that's you call them the 18 assurances. And that truly is what they are. Can can you mention a couple? And then I also want to know how you develop these. Did you just sit down and write these thoughts down? Or were they just observations and and realizations that came to you over time that you wrote down? The book is structured into 18 standalone promises or or assurances. So each chapter in the book is effectively a a different promise. And that was something I wanted to do because I wanted people to be able to pick up the book and dip into it, to be able to read just one chapter. I remember how incredibly short my attention span was when I was first bereaved. I couldn't concentrate properly and I just didn't have that focus to be able to read a whole book. It was overwhelming, you know? And so I think something that is bite-sized, that's easily digestible is really important when you're going through something like that. But I also wanted to be able to offer hope at every stage of the Mm -hmm. book. So sometimes when we read memoirs, they're structured in a very narrative linear fashion. So at the start of the book, this terrible thing, this event happens, whether it's a a bereavement and and, an abuse, whatever it is, poverty, alcoholism, a terrible thing has happened. And then gradually we move forward in time to a place of happiness and and hope. And that's where we we leave the the reader. That works brilliantly. And it's a great way of structuring an autobiography or, or a memoir. But the problem with it is that you have to travel through all those dark times before you get to the light. And I felt that readers who are recently bereaved or who are are living with loss, you shouldn't have to wait so long. I wanted to give them um, small pockets, I suppose, of, of hope. So what the structure does is that it gives you these 18 promises and they cover what I see as symptoms of grief. Because for me, grief is like a chronic illness. You will live with forever, but the symptoms come and go over time and the symptoms can be managed in the way that symptoms of a chronic disorder can be managed. So, for example, I promise that you will be able to sleep easily again. And I promise that you will be able to take a breath without feeling as though someone's sitting on your chest crushing it. And all these symptoms of of grief that are so very acute in the beginning will ease over time. So when I started writing it, it was a very different approach to my fiction. So I'm I'm a very, very methodical, very organized person. I have endless lists. And when I write my my novels, which are generally very sort of twisty, tautly plotted thrillers, I have spreadsheets, I have word tables, <laughs> I have all sorts. It's all very, very, I suppose scientific on my computer. And this was very different. I needed to write in pen. And I don't know why I needed a, you know, it, it just that felt very Yeah. Really connecting because you were so connected emotionally with this topic to be able to connect with the page in that same way. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I think I needed that sort of grounding that anyway. So I bought 
a new notebook, obviously, because writers take every opportunity to buy new stationery. I had a beautiful notebook with the title. In fact, it was the title was slightly different. It was the working title was was just promises for grief. So the notebook has promises for grief on the front. And I wrote things down as they occurred to me. I carried that notebook around with me for months. And I just wrote down everything I thought of about grief and how it had evolved and how I'd navigated it. And I thought of sort of snapshots, I suppose, of my life over the last 18 years, because when grief can do funny things to your memory and a lot of when I think back, a lot of the early days come to me in very small pockets. It's a little bit like I've been watching a film, but I've I've been walking in and out of the room and I'm, you know, I'm just seeing broken scenes. I'm not quite sure what links them together. And, and, and when I was very ill with my grief, that's how things were, that there would be a perhaps a moment, a conversation or a day that stands out in sharp relief. But I'm not quite sure what happened either side of it because I was so unhappy, I was so, so mm-hmm. desperately. So I wrote all that down. And slowly what emerged were themes so that I could group things together under particular topics that I wanted to explore. Um, but it was a slow process. I couldn't write it as fast as I write my fiction. Normally, I will say to myself that I will write around 1,500 words or 2,000 words a day, and I will just keep going, unrelenting, seven days a week until that that draft is finished, 100,000 words, done. Well, I couldn't possibly write, I promise, that fast. In fact, I needed to keep putting it down and leaving it for several days. There were parts of it that I didn't want to write at home. I didn't want to bring all that past grief into a life that is now very settled, very calm, very happy. I didn't want the two worlds to collide. So instead, I wrote in hotel rooms. Oh, I wrote really? when. When I traveled for work, I would write on aeroplanes, on in trains, anywhere where I knew I could shut myself into my own world and nobody was going to intrude. It didn't matter if I emerged from a hotel room having, you know, cried for an hour. No one was going to ask me what had happened. And yeah, so so I wrote it in, in a much more disjointed way and out of order, which I never do with my fiction. This is so different from writing, as you've just told us, the process was different. What was happening to you healing-wise to be working on this book? Because I know how it lands to read this book, and it's powerful. So I can only imagine what it was like to be walking through those feelings as you're writing this book. What did that, how did it change you to write this book? Well, the irony of it is that, of course, I, I set out to write this book because I realized how much better I was in my grief and I wanted to show other people that they could get better too. And yet in writing it, I realized how broken I still was and how I needed to do more work. I would say that this book tore me apart emotionally and then put me back together again. And I think that's what it might do for a lot of of readers. I wrote the first draft and actually I found the first draft really therapeutic and relatively straightforward to write. And when I handed it in to my editor, I thought, oh, that wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. And she he called me and she said, I love this. This is going to be so important. I need you 
to dig deeper now. And oh, I'm going wow. to send the manuscript and I'm going to mark up where I want you to tell us more. And so I got this manuscript back and there were, you know, lots and lots of areas where she was saying, yes, but give us more. And that second draft, wow, that was like, it was like peeling off my skin and exposing my wounded flesh to the world. It it, it was so, so hard. And yet when I finished, I felt so much lighter and I just... I guess I realized that I hadn't quite worked through everything that I thought I had. So it was a real journey, a real process of therapy and catharsis for me, which feels like a very selfish project. You know, it feels like this is surely something that I could have done by writing a journal, but I don't think it would have worked like that for me. I don't think I would have been as honest in my own journal as I am in I Promise, because I think I felt a huge weight of responsibility to tell it like it is. I pull no punches in this book. I, Mm -hmm. you know, in fiction, we talk a lot about likable characters and how readers need to be able to, you know, like the characters they're reading about and root for them. And, and, you know, I can tell you there are times in this memoir where I am not a likable character. (laughs) And I felt it was really important just to be honest right the way through to never, ever tell anything that isn't just the raw truth. And it's interesting as you talk, because one thing we do mention a lot on the show is the power of journaling. Can you see someone using kind of your similar process, only they're not writing it for the world? They're only writing it to explain it to themselves. Could you see how that would be helpful? I think it is immeasurably helpful. I wrote, in fact, my entire writing career is because of journaling. I'd written all my life. I wrote as a child and, you know, writing was always something that I loved to to do. But after Alex died, I started writing much more intensively, I suppose. I wrote letters to my unborn children, first of all, when, um, so one of the reasons he died from meningitis and a brain bleed, but he was very premature, which of course made him extra vulnerable. And when I knew that the babies were arriving early, I started writing to them. I wrote letters, which is, you know, letters are another way of journaling. You don't ever have to show those letters to anyone, but it's incredibly healing to say what you want to say to somebody. So I wrote letters. And then after he died, I carried on writing and I wrote, I started a blog and I wrote about grief. And later on, I wrote about um, the postnatal depression that I suffered with my subsequent children. And that was my first foray into writing for other people. And what happened is that I would get letters from or emails, messages, comments from people saying, this spoke to me. I heard myself in your words. And it was the first time I think that I'd realized how powerful words were, not just as a reader. I've I've always known the power that they have over me as a reader. But it was the first time I'd realized that my words as a writer could have that sort of power. And so I then began writing for an audience and, you know, the the rest is history. But those early blog posts and those early journal entries were just for me. And I think everybody can benefit from putting their thoughts onto paper. That's excellent. And obviously the book gives us 18 assurances on grief. Is there one that 
is your favorite or that resonates with you more than the the other promises? Oh, I don't know. I think I think they're all so important and they're all very heartfelt. I guess that, you know, the the one that, that stands out is the title and the promise that actually it's a slight cheat, I suppose, or it's slightly disingenuous to have 18 because it is 18 assurances, but I have intentionally repeated the first and the last um, and also used it as the title. I promise it won't always hurt like this because it's the most important one. It's the one you need to hear over and over and over because you won't believe it. I didn't believe it, but it will become true. And so if readers take nothing else away from the 18 assurances, I want them to hear that and know that it won't always hurt the way it's hurting for them now. And this is such a powerful book for anyone who is wading through their grief. But what really struck me, too, is it's an incredible tool for the friends and family of someone who's grieving because it provides such a clear lens to look through, to really examine grief. And, and again, we are all going to face grief throughout our lives, and so it can help us with our own. But when we're, we're dealing with someone who's trying to handle immeasurable grief, this is really helpful for your circle as well. It's, it's hard to know what to say sometimes, isn't it? And, and even those of us who have been through grief and struggle to find the right words because we know only too well our grief isn't your grief. We all experience mm -hmm. this in different ways. Loss is universal, but grief is unique. And so the words that might seem right for one person might really upset or offend someone else. And the great thing about giving a book is that the recipient can read that whenever they want and they can react to it however they want in private. They can read passages over and over. They can highlight bits. They can throw the book across the room if it, it you know, if that's when it offends them or reaction. Them, yes. And a book is there for you at the precise moment you need it. Of course, you might have friends that you can call at three in the morning, but the reality is that most of us aren't going to do that. Even if those friends have been insistent in the fact that they are there for you no matter what, no matter when. We're not going to do it. We wake up and we sit in the dark and we feel so desperately alone and so incredibly grief stricken. So to be able to turn on the light and pick up a book or to turn on your audio book and to listen to some words of comfort that might make you feel less alone, I think is a really important thing. So yes, I, I hope that this book finds its way to people who need it, either because they are drawn to it on a bookshelf or because a friend presses it into their hand. Absolutely. And again, it is remarkable. It is well-written. It is, it's so personal and, and it feels like listening to a friend and going through this journey with someone else. Claire, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking about this. We're going to tell our listeners where they can find your book, where they can find your other books, where they can learn more about you. And, and again, this is just a remarkable book. It's for anyone going through grief, anyone who is friends, relative of someone who's, who's trying to manage their grief. It is just an incredible, incredible book. And I thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. That was Claire McIntosh talking about grief and love. If you'd like to learn more about Claire, follow her on social media, or learn more about her book, I Promise It Won't Always Hurt Like This, visit us at livehappy.com 
and click on the podcast tab. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our weekly Live Happy newsletter. Every Tuesday, we drop a little bit of joy in your inbox with the latest stories, podcast info, and even a happy song of the week. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.